Well, we're back for our next installment in the study of the book of Hebrews, and we've gotten to my favorite chapter, chapter 7 of Hebrews. And I love it, and I, I'm not sure why. I think it's because I like when things work. I like when things fit together nicely, and they really fit together nicely in Hebrews chapter 7. It, it, it really is beautiful. I like a good argument. I like when a good argument is made, and it makes sense, and it fits. Throughout the book of Hebrews, there's an author writing, making an argument for the superiority of Jesus Christ, the superiority of the gospel to the old law. And there's a lot of aspects to that that he's got to tackle and show. He's already done some of them. Jesus better than the angels, Jesus better than Moses as a lawgiver, heaven better than Canaan as a Sabbath rest, etc. But now we come to this issue of the high priest, and it's going to require a little bit deeper dive because that's a big deal. It serves a lot of functions and is fundamental to everything about their faith, right? So a case within the case has to be made, and that's why the author spends the, the length of these three chapters convincing us, the audience, that Jesus is, in fact, a high priest, and he's a superior one. And this argument just fits so beautifully, and it's convincing, and it's pretty cut and dry when you're finished with it. And also, it draws on this stuff I love, which is the gospel in the Old Testament. I use the phrase a lot that Jesus is between the lines of the Old Testament, and it's true. Jesus is popping up throughout the Old Testament, and we just have to look for it. We just have to see it. Um, and one of the places he pops up is in this story about Melchizedek and this story about Abraham and, and Melchizedek and their interaction. And I've said before many times, I firmly believe this, and I know it's personal opinion. There's probably some disagreement amongst theologians and scholars, but I'm not in their club anyway, so whatever. Um, I really believe, because I don't want to limit God, that when he saw to it through his guidance and his providence that we would have a roadmap here in, in Scripture that the events that occurred in the past would be referred to again in the subsequent writings and subsequent teachings in order to make further points about God and his relationship with mankind. So Melchizedek and Abraham have this interaction, and it's pretty isolated. It goes by like that, and then we never hear about the guy again, and Abraham moves on with his life, and then, lo and behold, someone else picked up that writing and, and saw what happened and used it as an example. And then, lo and behold, someone else picked it up and used it as an example, too, and the author of Hebrews did the same thing. Um, it's not just a convenient point they're making. They're not just taking a story out of context and using it incorrectly. I believe God's wisdom and the movement of the Holy Spirit allowed all of those things to occur so that we could have the truth revealed to us. Jesus was always present in that story about Melchizedek, but we just have to see it. So let's dig into chapter 7. Here we go. Remember, we finished chapter 6 where he's talking about the high priesthood. Um, the, the author has introduced this idea of the high priest really back in chapter 4. We get into chapter 5, and he talks about the purpose of high priests, the upside to human pre high priests, that they understood humanity, but the downside is that they are spiritually deficient. They're subject to sin. Jesus is not. And then a little interlude for a few verses in chapter 6 where he says, okay, you're going to need to toughen up because this requires some spiritual maturity and understanding to, to get. And you need to move on past the really elementary stuff and dig in. Jesus wasn't just a good teacher. Jesus isn't just the Son of God. He didn't just bring salvation and then we go back to, to, to being Christ-believing Jews. We're not Jews for Jesus. We're 
We're something different now. We are changed. We are Christian. We are children of God through Christ. And now we have to get ready to understand this. And here's how we understand it. He mentions Melchizedek, and he mentions Jesus is superior because he endured humanity, but he's also the Son of God, right? And then he uses the phrase, um, having become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, referring to Jesus entering into the throne room of God on our behalf, which is what the high priest was supposed to do, but he was only able to do it under certain conditions. He was only able to do it for a certain amount of time, and it was only a facsimile of the throne room in the most holy place. Jesus is able to do it for real, and he's able to do it in a more perfect way. Why? Because he's a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, borrowing a phrase from the book of Psalms. Now we get to chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, and that's how he's described, by the way, in Genesis. Okay, uh, When this occurs in, in the book of Genesis, in chapter 14, um, that's how he's described. A high priest of God, or, or a priest of God most high, and the king of Salem. We don't really know where that is. There are some that believe that Salem is um, maybe Jerusalem or what would become Jerusalem, although Jerusalem didn't really exist at that point. Um, but Salem, Jerusalem, uh, there's some similarity there. So there's people that feel that there's a connection. In fact, really, if you read enough about this, there's some people that believe Melchizedek himself might have been the embodiment of Jesus. I don't see Jesus appearing anywhere in the Old Testament with the exception that we do see someone referred to as the angel of the Lord. And there's some evidence pretty strongly that that's Jesus popping up in the story. I don't think Melchizedek is necessarily Jesus. He's described as uh, in the way that, um, that he's going to be described here by the author of, of Hebrews. Um, and... It says that he has no no mother or father. He did not. He was ne not born. He never died. Um, and so people take that and say, well, he's he's eternal, and it just means they don't have a record of it. The the author who wrote Genesis they didn't know where the guy came from. They didn't know where he went. They didn't know who his parents were or where he was from. Simple as that. So a mysterious figure. If you want to believe it's Jesus, fine. But I think it's more powerful that it's not. Uh, I think it's more powerful than it's not because God uses this moment, which is so short, to do something great in helping our understanding of Jesus. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth of part of everything. Um, he is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Okay, that's what Melchizedek means. And then he is also the king of Salem. That is the king of peace. The word Salem means peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Okay. Resembling the Son of God. He looks like the Son of God. Not physically, but resembling him because of the relationship with Abraham. And we're going to get into what that means. But you got to get your mind around this first. The author describes Melchizedek points out there's some similarities with Jesus. And one of those major similarities is that Melchizedek is a priest forever. He is forever a priest. What does it mean forever? Um, forever we mean as final and infinite. They meant forever differently. Because we see a lot of times in Scripture where it says this will be the way it is forever and ever. 
And then a few chapters later, it's not that way anymore. Because forever to them meant as it is right now, as it stands. And until it changes, it is forever this way. I'm 35. In the language and vernacular of Semitic cultures, first century Jews, I'm 35 forever. That just means I'm 35 until I'm 36. Because if I die tomorrow, I'm still 35. And I'll essentially be 35 forever. Uh, same idea. Until something changes, this is how it is. So it's that way forever. We just have to accept that that's the way they used words back then and understand it that way. So here comes Melchizedek. Now look at the, the, the interaction. Because this is all there is to the relationship with Abraham is this interaction. Okay, The interaction is this. That he met Abraham. Abraham's coming back from battle. Okay, He's just won a victory. He meets Melchizedek, a stranger. Melchizedek offers him a blessing. First thing, write it down. Melchizedek blesses Abraham. Second thing is that Abraham then gives a tithe, a tenth, a portion of the spoils of the war to Melchizedek. Those are two very important things. When someone blesses someone, it establishes something about their relationship, which we'll read in a minute. And when someone gives a tithe or a tenth to someone, it also establishes something about their relationship. So Abraham meets Melchizedek. Don't know anything about where he came from. Don't know anything about him after this. But something in that interaction makes Melchizedek a priest and a superior priest to which Jesus can be compared. Okay? And he's a priest forever, meaning until he's not. And since we never hear from him again, he's always been a priest and he always will be. So if he's a priest and his status as a priest is unchanged because we have nothing to change it, then what makes him a special kind of priest? And why does comparing Jesus to him make him greater than the Levitical priest? Well, we got to go back to those two things that happened between Abraham and between Melchizedek. Let's keep reading here. Verse 4, See how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Aha! So because Abraham gave the spoils to him, the tenth of it, that established a hierarchy. Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because Abraham pays him a tribute. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. Okay, that makes a point in the modern context, modern for the writing. Here is, uh, we understand the high priest and the priest and the tribe of Levi are superior to everybody else because they take a tenth from the people. They're ordered to pay a tithe. But yet, they're all descended from Abraham, a common genealogical connection. And Abraham gave a tenth of his spoils to who? Melchizedek. Huh. So Melchizedek's greater than Abraham in the same way the Levites are greater than everyone else on the basis of this tithe. And yet, all of them are under Abraham. Does that say something about them? Again, read on. It will all be explained. But this man, we're talking about Melchizedek, verse 6, who does not have uh, his uh, descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, 
tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right. This is the crux of it all. The author is trying to show Jesus is superior to the Levitical priests. How will he show that? By referring to Jesus as a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. That phrase would have meant something to the people reading and hearing this message. They would have known what that meant. And now he's going to explain why that matters. Melchizedek, who has, we have no knowledge of him. We just know he's a priest. That means the interaction that occurs with Abraham lasts forever because nothing is recorded that would undo it. So it happened and it established a relationship. First, Melchizedek blesses Abraham and the author says, the greater blesses the lesser. All right, so that blessing shows us that Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. Then Abraham pays a tithe to Melchizedek and we know that the tithe is paid from the lesser to the greater. So two events occur in this short period of time that prove conclusively to a Jewish mind that Abraham was lesser than Melchizedek. Melchizedek was greater than Abraham. So that's established by those two events, and nothing has occurred to undo that. Therefore, it is forever that way. That's how they would have thought. That's how they would have written, because nothing has changed about that relationship. Melchizedek will forever be greater than Abraham. Well, what does that mean for Jesus and the Levitical priests? Well, the Levitical priest descended from Abraham. And, and as the author says here, one might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. So these Levitical priests, although they received tithes from the people, in effect, they paid tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. And this is the way that Semitic cultures think. This is the way the Jewish people thought. We're not as much this way, although we are sometimes. Um, I... I have uh, good friends who are the grandchildren of people who were some of my grandparents' best friends. Uh, sometimes relationships transfer through generations. Um, and, but that's kind of a social thing for us. This was a cultural thing, almost a legal thing in the time. When your ancestor did something, it was as if you did it. Now, they didn't have the understanding that we have of genetics and how um, co uh, uh, conception occurs and how reproduction occurs. But even then, they recognized that it was a part of a person that existed within them that was then manifest in a new person. Uh, and actually, embarrassingly, it's remarkably recent that we discovered that men and women are both involved in reproduction. Uh, it used to be that medical science was split on this issue. Of course, we knew intercourse had to occur, but for one part of, of science, they said, well, it's, it's the man uh, that it does everything. The woman is essentially a, a, an incubator. So the man is actually depositing uh, the, the, the genetics and the new creation, a child. So the man's actually placing the child in the woman to be grown and developed in birth. There was another side of that that said, no, 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 it is the man that is activating the, um, the, the child being grown and developed inside the woman. Uh, these two groups, by the way, uh, had a lot of debates. And this, again, like 
150 years ago or less? Really, we're not that advanced. Um, so when people tell you to follow the science, ask them how far. Because if you go back very far, it's not science anymore. These two groups, uh, one, one were called the spermist and the other called the ovist. I'm not joking. So, there you go. Things you didn't know. That's free of charge. It won't be on the test. Um, but it was recognized, even up to that point, that something about this new child you've made existed in you beforehand. Right? We understand genetics and eggs and sperm and all that now, but they didn't. And so in their minds and in their understanding and in their culture, if a man did something, say, for instance, established a relationship of superiority and inferiority with another person, then that relationship transferred to the next generation by virtue of the fact the next generation was already inside them in their loins, as the author puts pretty explicitly. So because Levi came out of Abraham, everything Abraham did in the relationships he had transferred to Levi, and so on and so forth through the tribe of Levi, through the families of the priesthood, and through the high priest himself. So what does that mean? What that means is that if Melchizedek was inferior, or excuse me, if Abraham was inferior to Melchizedek, then Levi's inferior to Melchizedek. And the priests who descend from Levi are inferior to Melchizedek. And if you want to describe a priest that is superior to the Levites, he must be one who is in the order of Melchizedek. And the author here invokes that phrase which would have been known and understood to them and explains it in a way that they had never thought of before to help them see that Jesus is a high priest like Melchizedek was a high priest in that he is superior to Levi and to the Levitical priests. Because you can say he's superior, and he's already pointed out the reasons he's superior, but they can't wrap their brain around the concept of anything being superior to Levi because that's what their law says. That's what their tradition says. So he has to find a way to using their own logic and their own law and their own culture to prove it. So logically, he's already proven it, because Jesus is the Son of God and he lived on earth as a man. That makes sense logically. But he's got to demonstrate it culturally. And he demonstrates it culturally by making the comparison to Melchizedek. And it just works. It's perfect. It's beautiful. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need were there have been for another priest? to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Now he points out, um, if perfection was necessary, was able to be achieved with Levi, why do we need a new priest in the order of Melchizedek? And he says, it's just like, because formerly, before Levi, before the Levites were named that tribe, Aaron, the brother of Moses, served as the first high priest. As the law was established, they needed a high priest, and Aaron was the guy and his family. They were the first priests. But then the law was given, and the law was changed, and the priesthood changed. And so the author points out there are times when the priesthoods have to change, and the law has to change to make that happen. And so that means that if we have changed high priests, we have also changed laws. 
Oh my goodness. What a great way that he's moving through this. He makes all these arguments about angels and Moses and the promised land and then gets to the high priest and he digs in deep to tackle that high priest issue. And he points out the truth about Melchizedek and the relationship with with Abraham and then Levi. And then he says, now, okay, you followed me this far. So you agree we have a new high priest. Great. All right. Well, if we have a new high priest, then that means we have a new law. And you can almost hear the the the, the sounds, the audible gasps. And when these the audience realizes that they've just followed him down this path of reason to get to the conclusion that they may have disagreed with at the outset, but they've followed down this trail of logical breadcrumbs to reach this conclusion. We do have a new law. Didn't come down from a mountain on tablets. It wasn't written by Moses. It, It came a different way. But we have a new high priest, and this great climactic conclusion, I think, to the argument about the high priest, and then we're right back to the next thing. So, therefore, next layer, if we have a new high priest, then what? We have to have a new law. That means we live under a different age, the Christian age, with the law of Christ, no longer the Mosaic age and the law of Moses. Let's finish out this chapter. We're getting a little long here, so I want to Get through it. For uh, Verse 13. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses has said nothing about priests. So if you've agreed with me that Jesus must be a superior high priest, then what does that mean about the law? Because now we have someone from the tribe of Judah who is the high priest, not from Levi, that means the law must have changed. All right. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent or your ancestry, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside, because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But the one who was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Wow. I'm blown away. The wisdom, the inspiration of this argument. If you were to ask me, why is Jesus a high priest? Or is he a high priest? If I'd never read Hebrews, I don't know that I would have even known what that question meant. But God saw to it that somebody explained it and that we can know it. And particularly for this audience who was struggling with coming out of Judaism and understanding what happens to this law now. Where does it go? What do we do with it? He's got to convince them that that law has been done away with. And he says the law never made anything perfect. The law had a lot of problems. The law was never meant to be permanent. And so Jesus was was brought to us. Jesus emerged as the answer to that question, becoming a priest with an oath, which the Levites didn't even take. So he's superior in all these ways. It's beautiful. 
Verse 23, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. In other words, one died, you had to get another one. And then when that one died, you got to get another one. And they rotated through the office. So you had a lot of different high priests. But he holds his priesthood permanently, that is Jesus, because he continues forever. He's he's contemporaneously referring to uh, Jesus and Melchizedek, by the way. Maybe some debate in the language about which one that is. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives, to make intercession for them. List the problems of the high priest. Well, humanity, finite lifespan, uh, all of those things, no oath, all right? List the good parts about it. Uh, well, they're human. That's a, that's a good and a bad, right? Well, what about Jesus? Human and man, or human and God at the same time. So he's he's covered the bad side of humanity. He took an oath. He reigns forever. There's no finite. There's nothing finite about his his reign as a as a priest. He just this the author does a beautiful job. He checks every box to make this argument. I love it. And why does he live forever? What is his purpose? To make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Okay, wait a minute. Jesus is perfect as a high priest because the other high priests had to offer a sacrifice to cleanse themselves before they could offer a sacrifice to cleanse the people. Well, Jesus is the high priest and he's the sacrifice. He's so perfect that he can offer himself to be into the throne room of God to then offer himself that we can join him. I mean, this is... You see why this is my favorite book? This is my favorite chapter in the whole Bible, Hebrews chapter 7. It's got everything. Uh, Verse 28, finishing it out. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priest, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. If you ever doubt your salvation... If you ever wonder if this works, please read Hebrews chapter 7. I mean, it's perfect. This is why Christ makes so much sense to me. This is why I'm a believer. Because it works. There's nothing else, no other religion, no other system, no other belief. Nothing else makes this much sense. It just doesn't. It's beautiful. Read chapter 7 again, and then read it again, and then read it again, okay? Commit it to, to memory, 